Welcome to the Dallas-based Innovators Podcast presented by Louderco. I'm your host, Andrew Louder. We believe this entire Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex is filled with people innovating. We designed this podcast to highlight the innovative things those business leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and problem solvers are doing day in and day out. We're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, and in these uncertain times, Along with our usual rich content, we're bringing you the topics we think you'll find helpful to guide you through some of the stress and ambiguity you're facing in your business. As always, this show is brought to you by my company, Louderco. We find our clients' profits through artificial intelligence and better operations. To learn more about us and schedule a conversation, head to our website, louderco.com. Take a look at our response to this pandemic, a service we're calling Business Resurgence Services. Things are very different right now. We believe you must reshape your business if it's going to succeed in this new normal. We're here to help. We'll design and execute your new operating playbook so you can get past the uncertainty and get back to profitability. Your comeback awaits. We're about to get the show started. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review. And now, enjoy our guests and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Dallas-based Innovators Podcast brought to you by Louder Co. I'm your host, Andrew Louder, and I have to tell you, I'm extremely happy to have these two special guests with us today. Two fantastic, innovative minds that have both been past guests of our show. We have Mark Good, CEO of Commerce Basics, and Mike Courtney, CEO and futurist of Aperio Insights. And I'll tell you, we've had a a few different um, offline conversations about this COVID pandemic. And in talking, we said, we've got to take this um, onto the podcast and we've got to, t- you know, we've got to share our thoughts and really share it with you listeners out there. Perhaps there's some, some hope, some action items, um, some takeaways that can be gleaned from this conversation and really guiding you through this COVID pandemic. So in this special episode, we're diving into the topic of innovation in the midst of this COVID pandemic. You know, we'll talk through the status of it. Where do we find ourselves? What's changed? And truly how businesses can innovate coming out of this. So Mark, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Hey, thanks Andrew, good to be here. Good to see you again, Mike. Good to see you. So guys, a lot's been going on. You know, uh, I'm not quite the uh, poetic as the two of you are. I would love, Mark, perhaps let's start with you. I'd love for you to just kind of open things up with, you know, where are we now in this timeline of COVID? What's been going on? And would love to, to really hear, you know, how would you describe the time that we're in right now? Um, well, th- thanks for the introduction and uh, a pleasure to be with both of you on the on the podcast today. Um this is for me and i think for almost everyone uh an unprecedented um situation uh, i i'm a guy who has studied history academically and continued to do a lot of reading on my own in the years since undergraduate graduate school and um i can't find anything either in my personal history or in the recent past, unless you go back to the pandemic of 1918, 1919, that is quite like this. And this one is even more severe, I think, even than that pandemic, not so much uh, academic, I mean, not so much medically, it may get that uh, dire, but I think because of the way our world operates today, and I know Mike has some a lot of insights into this, we are so interconnected. You know, we talk about the butterfly effect that global supply chains or even national. I mean, as an example, this is just a just a sort of an anecdote, but I think most of us can relate to. Um, when COVID nineteen broke out in a pork processing plant in South Dakota. Okay, that's a long way from Dallas. And then you hear that 5% 
of the entire national supply chain of pork goes through that one factory, right? And then you hear that supplies will be constrained. And then a few days later, or maybe a week or two later, supplies are constrained because meat processing plants throughout the country, turns out, are hotspots for COVID. Um, I, I mean, I just, I've not seen anything like this. I, I, I don't, this doesn't, this doesn't ring familiar to me. So I think this is a really, really different time. And I think it's, it's really challenging all of us on a lot of different levels. So anyway, I'll stop there, but, and let me turn it over to Mike. Sure. Well, and, and, and Mark, I agree that this is truly an unprecedented time. And that the weird thing about events like this is that we can certainly look out and say, ah, well, some of this feels familiar. Some of these things, hey, you know, have we had financial crises before? Yeah, we have. Have we had, you know, health crises before? Yeah, we have. And it's easy to look and say, okay, this is similar to those in some ways. But then we also look at the other side of the coin and say, well, there are certainly things that are happening now that uh, I don't think we have seen. So as with most things in the world and most things in life, this is a great example of an and construct versus an or construct. It's not that is this closer to this or that, it's this mixed with that. It's both together. Uh, the, the image that comes to mind as you were talking, Mark, is um, I just read, I think it was yesterday, a Cirque du Soleil organization laid off like 5,000 people. Um, and Cirque du Soleil, for those of you that have ever been to one of their shows, fantastic quality show. Oh, I mean, yeah. World, world renowned. And, and what comes to mind when I think of that is that the environment we're living in today, both here in the U.S. and what the world's going through, it's sort of like over the years, the whole global you know, economy has gotten to the point where everybody sort of had a whole lot of plates spinning, and we got really good and efficient at spinning those plates, and now all of a sudden we've basically stopped many of those plates uh, from spinning all at once, and it's not the same to just say, hey, game back on, let's spin up all the plates. Because by the way, some of them fell and broke. Some of them, you know, uh, are no longer positioned well on the fingers or on the things that we're balancing on. And I think it's going to be that kind of a challenge to say, okay, we had all these spinning plates and all these sticks and fingers and, and everything was a nice, nice machine that every once in a while, oh, oh, you know, a financial wind would blow or a health wind would blow and, and things would get a little wonky. But here we have something that is a dramatic shift and many of those plates that are spinning uh, aren't going to come back or certainly not going to come back at the flip of the switch. Well, no, that's a great analogy. In fact, um, I was involved in an online conversation, a thread with someone today who is in the restaurant industry. And uh, turns out my oldest daughter is the co-owner of a high-end restaurant in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Her name is Christina. And so I was talking to her, I don't know, when this whole COVID thing started, you know, the, the governor of New Mexico did what most of the governors did, which was to stop restaurant operations and shut down retail and so forth. And so she and her partner went through that whole drill of, you know, shut down and then let's go to takeout and all this kind of stuff and all the stuff you hear about. And I, I remember asking her the other day, we were talking because watching her governor, just like watching Abbott here in Texas, you know, try to thread the needle between how do I balance the risk associated with you know, so returning to socialization and sort of semi-normal behavior. And then on the other hand, the contagiousness of this virus, which is off the charts. How do I balance it? It's very hard. I asked Christine, I said, hey, you know, our governor has said that a restaurant can open at 25% capacity. Would you open at 25%? And she said, dad, no. And I said, why not? She goes, I can't achieve break even. She said, I can barely break even at 50%. And even with that, I'm going to have to raise prices. And, and then she went into this really interesting nuance because she's lived in Colorado, Texas, and New Mexico. Uh, in Colorado, the outside patio is considered legally a part of the space you occupy. So when they, when they say 25%, that includes the patio, right, in Colorado. In Texas, 
patios are not considered a part of the occupiable space. So if you have a Texas restaurant, let's say like Gloria's in, in Colleyville, which is right, kind of getting a lot of attention. So they open up, they can say, sure, 25%, no problem. And they said, when you drive by Gloria's, everybody's packed on the patios. <laughs> because right? that's not controlled. So I think back to your spinning plate analogy, as one person said, it's much harder to restart this than it is to stop it. And I, and I think figuring out, particularly when it's all incremental, you know, how do you, how do you go 25 or 50%? Not only what does that mean from a business model standpoint, but I can even enforce that. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And, and go ahead, Andrew. Now, I think what you're hitting on here is a conversation, just unit economics, right? Does it make sense to to open up? Are you still going to be profitable at 25%? Or is the strategy, hey, stay closed for the eight weeks, take the PPP, pay your folks, keep them going, but keep the restaurant shut? You know, those are, those are different kinds of uh, decisions I think business leaders are needing to make. And even and I'll share with you kind of a personal anecdote. So we have... Um, you know, our, our local uh, baseball little league here. Um, this whole time, they've been saying, "Hey, we're gonna, we're just gonna wait and see, wait and see." They're not canceling the season or anything. I coach my son's five U t-ball team, and uh, so the league just announced about the, just hours or a day or so after um, you know, Governor Abbott announced the reopening that hey, they're gonna relaunch the baseball season under some new parameters and. You know, social distancing, you can't practice in teams larger than three kids at a time and all this stuff. And so I circulated an email to the the parents of the team just to get a feel for, hey, what's how, how are you, how's everybody feeling with this? And I'm personally, I'm not quite as comfortable doing that. You know, it's uh, I've got a two month old at home. I've got, um, you know. To, to go and, and play baseball, you know, yes, you're, you're apart, but you're all touching the same baseball with your hands and who knows what you've got going, right? So I'm not willing to run that risk. And yet, the, you know, it, what I find really fascinating is everybody's viewpoint on this, on, on this um, reopening. You know, I've got most of the parents saying, no, I'd rather not um, play baseball. It's just T-ball. Why risk it? And then a small few saying, "Hey, what the heck? Let's let's uh, we've been you know dying to open things back up. Let's get going." And uh, yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned packing the the patios over there. Um, yeah, I, I I think it's just uh, you're what I don't know how you actually gauged this, but I'll I'll bet you it's a quite quite a polarizing concept right now between folks wanting to stay home and stay quarantined and those that feel like it's time to just run free. Well, I, I will draw uh, a couple of points. One, um, I will reference one historical uh, experience, which I think does apply here, and that was the pandemic of 1819. Uh, there was a story I read the other day that the, the mayor of San Francisco in 1918 uh, did, did a lockdown just like is going on now. So, and it, after, I don't know whether 60 or 90 or 120 days, People got, just like now, they got lockdown fatigue. And they began to do just what's going on now. They said, to heck with this, we're going to get out. And and the the event that for them was a sort of a catalyst for celebration was the end of World War One, right? So it's, it's Armistice Day. It's November 11th, 1919. And so the mayor said, okay, what the heck? Go ahead, celebrate. The boys are home. The Doughboys, we won the war, blah, 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 blah. And within, I don't know, a month or two, the number of cases of the flu, they call it the Spanish flu, that broke out just, just devastated the city. And everyone had to kind of live with the fact that their desire to return to, quote, normal really resulted in the deaths of thousands of their fellow citizens. And, uh, and this is a, honestly, this is a common story, this, you know, lockdown and then fatigue and then let's re-socialize and then the disease spreads. This is a pretty common cycle in how humans respond to pandemics. 
Um, but I wanted to mention something else because we were talking about retail. I, I did a little research prior to this podcast, and there's a, a data point that, that to me was surprising because I, I'm a high-tech guy, and so I tend to see the world through the lens of high-tech. Uh, the retail industry employs 29 million people, which is one in four U.S. jobs. So when when we talk about freezing the economy, as Mike talked about, and I love that analogy of the spinning plates, and all those plates stop, and then some of them fall to the floor and crash, like J. Crew, like Neiman Marcus, right? Those are those plates are broken, right? Um, and we talk about one in four people. They, these are not people that can work from home. This is retail. They make their living in face-to-face contact. I mean, we used to boast about the fact that America has left behind its manufacturing roots and we're now a service economy. (laughs) What happens when you can't show up in the flesh? That's one in four people. God, that's a lot of of America. Yeah, yeah. And and the the other thing I think we need to keep in mind is that there are, um, again, there are things that we know now that we didn't know in the past, right? Back in the Spanish flu times, I mean, we have so much greater access to data, to knowledge, to, to be able to communicate what's going on. And it'll be interesting to see if that additional capability and capacity to communicate and understand and analyze in the moment uh, will actually service the way we, the way it should, right? Will technology uh, help us make better choices now than, than people in the past made. And if that is the case, if it's true, how much better choices will we make? And I think the counterbalance to the data and the analysis and, and the information that we do have access to is, you know, human nature and just the way humans, yeah, you know, we're all going to get fatigued with the idea of being shut in and locked down. And, and will human nature be too strong a pull, even though we have all this really rich, useful, uh, uh, compelling data that says we should act otherwise. Can human nature overcome data and say, nope, I'm going to do this anyway. I just, It's just innate. We, we just have to act in a certain way. Or will we really say, no, I'm going to suppress human nature and really let data drive my decisions in a way that may not feel natural or human? Well, let, let me, to support what you said, because we actually have case studies where technology has been employed right now in the words, in, in the context of this epidemic successfully, just not in the United States, in South Korea and Taiwan are two examples. And what they do is very aggressive testing in South Korea uh, and frequent testing, not just when you show symptoms, right? It's testing all the time. And then secondly, they do contact tracing. And they're very aggressive about it. And what they've done is they've isolated people who, as an example, if you've come in contact with somebody who is, let's say, asymptomatic, but infected, right? So obviously they're asymptomatic. I mean, they, they, they have no symptoms, but they're, they've got COVID. The South Koreans will go through this contact tracing sort of network, identify who you are, and basically order you to self-quarantine for 14 days. And now to your point about social, right, they, they, so far, the South Korean public has said, okay, we'll, we'll go for that 14 day, but, but here's what's different. It's highly targeted. It's not this blanket, everybody stay home or everybody mingle. It's targeted to people who have been exposed to folks they know with certainty, certainty, are infected. They just may not be symptomatic, but they're infected, right? So by using that, they've managed to not only keep the outbreaks low, but to keep the deaths low and to prevent the overflow in the hospitals. But to me, the difference between, and the Taiwanese have done the same thing, the difference between South Korea and Taiwan and the United States is not one of technology. It's one of political will and leadership. Now, you know, I don't want to turn the podcast into a political show, but... It leadership Thank really you for matters. That, yeah, well, but leadership matters in a time of crisis, and 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 I think you know the the as my wife and I will watch the news like everybody and in the evenings when you when you learn that as an example in the last month 
and I love this example that uh, Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo of New York, has given, where governors are competing with each other. The way he describes it is like on eBay, an auction for limited PPE equipment. And now what they've done is naturally is they formed, in effect, think of it as buyers co-ops, right? So governors of seven states say, let's all band together and bid together. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, there is this thing called the federal government, you know, what's what's this thing called Washington all about, right? It's like it's AWOL during the crisis. Now, in South Korea, that's not true. And in Taiwan, it's not true. The, the central governing authority has taken control and has used, Mike, the technology that you've described extremely effectively. So that's that's my take. And with that, I'll with that, I'll hand the baton back. <laughs> yeah, Mike, one thing that you mentioned in a, a past uh, podcast recording, especially related to COVID, was these three phases that you inevitably go through. And I think there's so much good to come out of that. I'd love for you to just unpack that for us again here. Sure. So, so when I, when I, when I look at what's going on right now, uh, I, I sort of look in terms of three phases and these are three phases that, that have overlap, right? One's not going to completely finish and then the other and then the other, they have overlap. The first one of course is the health crisis, the COVID crisis. And that's obviously the dominant one right now, although depending on the day in the market, uh, the, the second one, which is financial uh, implications is basically the, the second phase, so to speak. So we see heavy emphasis on health right now, and that's the biggest driver of what's going on, uh, but it's gonna quickly follow by uh, the, the financial implications. And the third one is innovation, that as a result of the health and then the financial um, phase that we'll go through, the financial difficulty, we're gonna see a huge demand, a huge uh, wave of innovation that perhaps anything unlike we've ever seen because so many new needs will have been uncovered and unearthed. In fact, earlier when you were talking, Andrew, about you know to, to go play ball or not play ball, I was thinking, okay, there's another innovation that I hadn't thought of. Is Clorox going to do a deal with Rawlings and come out with you know <laughs> antimicrobial baseballs? Um, now we're talking. Yeah, that's know, a great. That's a great thought. I love that. You know, I mean, you know, it, who's the one that does uh, uh, basketballs? Maybe Wilson or something. You know, again, right. are they going to have you know an, an, an antimicrobial basketball? It's like, oh, okay, we're going to realize so many things that we never cared about in the past. Never, and if somebody had invented an antimicrobial ball in the past, people would have looked at them and said, "That's silly. It's stupid. We don't need it. It's <laughs> not solving anything we care about." COVID has changed the things we care about. And not only now when it's when it's a risk and an issue, um, even once you say, okay, well, once we come up with uh, pharmaceuticals and treatments and, and vaccines and things at whatever point that is, because we will eventually get this under control. But even at that point, people are gonna say, well, great, that's under control now. I wanna be ready for the next one. So, you know, maybe it is a good idea to have new products and, and new services that, that that prepare me for the next thing that could come. Um, so I, I think we're gonna see a huge wave of innovation after we uh, go through this phase one health, phase two finance, phase three innovation. And we are seeing some of that innovation today. It's just not the dominant part of the phase that we're encountering. Well, and I think it also may be that it doesn't get the airtime because quite frankly, all the oxygen in the media room is sucked up by rising case counts, death counts, and the, the squabbling that's going on from a leadership standpoint. Let me add to your comment about, um, you know, I love that, the, the vision of the sort of, I mean, this is the germaphobes nightmare is COVID-19, right? This is every germaphobes worst fears. Um, I, I read something today on Axios that is a really interesting uh, study that's just came out. They said that before the pandemic, less than 4% of American employees work from home full time. That, they say, has jumped to more than half. And they said among the top 20% of earners, this is a Brookings uh, Institute study, uh, those who are likely to have desk jobs that could be done from anywhere, that share is closer to 70%. Now, here's what's interesting. To the point, Mike, that you're making about, you know, plates dropping and the world being different, what they're saying is that this shift to work from home 
is not going to be an elastic thing where it's like an apogee that, you know, or satellite that goes out and then returns back to a previous state. They said, nope, work from home is here to stay. And that even after we get a vaccine, which I honestly believe is going to be 18 to 24 months away, and the all clear is sounded and we can all return to normal, normal is still going to include a heavy element of work from home because it would have become, it's become a part of the kind of the work dynamic now. And, uh, and then, so all of the stuff that supports effective working from home, which is a superset, in my opinion, of the technology and the solutions that are here today, will have, I think there will be a lot of innovation. That's my personal opinion, because I think the modalities of communication, like even this, no, it's still not good enough. And, and, and let me take my analogy, which uh, probably to the breaking point, but um, so in, in a world where Pun intended. <laughs> in, in a world where we used to, again, it, we, we relied on efficiency, relied on the fact that, okay, I can have, you know, only the, only the thickness of stick absolutely necessary to spin that plate and only apply the effort necessary to keep that plate spinning the way I want, that maybe it's inefficient, but maybe more stable in the future to say, tell you what, I'm gonna put some of those plates on Lazy Susans, because I know that if I put it on Lazy Susan, it takes more surface area, may not spin as efficiently, but I know that nobody's gonna knock it over, and maybe that's the work from home home aspect that, well, hey, if I work from home, is it as perfectly efficient as if I spin that plate on a really thin stick? Maybe not, but, you know, I can't disrupt it as easily. So maybe we have some people just spin on the Lazy Susan instead of spin on a stick. And and it's that kind of, I think, some people go back and say, no, I want the efficient, spin on a little stick, and, and spin it fast with a little effort. Other people are going to say, I'm okay with more friction, put that on the Lazy Susan because I know I can't tip it over as easily if a wind blows. Well, and I think also from the standpoint of, you know, business models, like my daughter who says the break even is 50% and until the governor allows 50, I'm not opening, right? I think businesses, when, you know, people start or governors begin to say, yeah, it's okay to go back into an office. I'm thinking to myself, because I know a little bit about how viruses spread and whatever, I'm like, okay, do I want to go into an office building that's got a closed HVAC system, which has been designed that way for energy efficiency, oh, by the way, right? So, and I've got, and this is where people who talk about air travel being safe and the carriers have gone, oh, but we're going to disinfect all the surfaces. I'm like, guys, you're missing something. Even the CDC has said this. When, when, I, when the pilot closes the doors and seals the cabin, the pressurization that occurs, they recirculate the air and they don't send it through a filter that can remove viruses. In fact, the CDC even warns that viruses can be transferred easily inside of a pressurized air cabin. So I'm thinking to myself, the airlines are saying, jump on board, it's all safe because everybody's going to wear a mask. And I'm like, not if there's somebody who's infected and asymptomatic, they're going to be breathing into a closed cabin and there's no fresh air. They don't, they don't like open an air vent at 35,000 feet and let cold air in, right? So all of these things to me, like, let's go back to the office thing. I think the work from home thing, I think businesses are going to go, well, you know what? Maybe I just need to downsize my office. And which IBM did, by the way, in the, in the aughts, right? They went through this whole work from home thing. And maybe I just need to figure out a way to telecommute. And maybe we just have face-to-face -face occasionally. And so that changes the real estate dynamic and the overhead, right? And maybe I need to pay people a little bit more so they can have effective broadband at home. And maybe I upgrade their camera systems so that like what we're doing right now, they've got 1080p or 4K images as opposed to 720p like on my Mac, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff. Um, I'll give you one example. There was a, a, a friend of mine who does the installation of home automation and security equipment in Frisco. And um, well, in that part of the city and a number of his clients were senior executives for Toyota. And when Toyota moved their headquarters to Frisco, the North American operations, uh, their senior executives have to get on to these video conferences in the middle of the night with their Japanese bosses. Right. And so in order to make that experience as lifelike as possible, 
he talked about them pulling fiber into these guys' homes and building these, I don't know what Cisco calls them. They're like a telepresence room that has these super yeah. high resolution, like, and so these guys, he talked about his clients. Okay. These are the people that are the executives who walk in and they sit down at the desk and they have their jammer bottoms on, right? And then they have their suit top on. And then they connect in this super high resolution, high fidelity. And the wall is where the edge of the conference room table is. And their counterparties, their Japanese counterparts are just on the other side of the glass, so to speak. And they have a meeting, right? Now it's it's like virtual there. It's not quite a holodeck because it's still 2D, but it's super high resolution. And what my friend Kent was telling me is the amount of technology it takes to support that kind of connectivity is pretty meaningful. Well, my point back to you, Mike, is that work from home, I think we're going to see that kind of stuff develop where we're going to upgrade the quality of this kind of experience and companies are going to go, I'll go ahead and make that investment. And employees are going to say, and I don't want to risk infection because, oh, by the way, COVID-19 is just the latest virus. It isn't like we nail this and it's over. Yeah, it, exactly. It's not like, like we nail this, it's over. Um, and also because of COVID, COVID doesn't, doesn't give us protection from other natural disasters. I no. mean, we can still have hurricanes, we can still have tornadoes, we can still have floods, we can still have all these other things, you know, fires, you know, uh, we can still have all these other things that happen. You know, it, it's not like a forest fire is going to say, hey, wait, we're going to hold off on burning the place down because <laughs> you're dealing with COVID. So we're going we're to wait our turn. Um, Mother nature you know, always wins. So, um, but in, in, in terms of, you know, will we see technology rise and, and get better? Yes, but I also think that um, uh, we'll also see expectations change. I mean, I think we're becoming more and more accepted of the fact that, hey, people have a life at home and that life might include pets and doorbells ringing and, and kids and, you know, um, you know, people walking through the background and going, Hey, are you ready for lunch? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you're on a call. You know I mean? And, and that's life and that's okay. And I think, well, our expectations will be a little different and we'll, we'll learn to see each other more as again, the, the, the in-depth complex humans that we are and not just the persona that we showed at work. Um, this says, okay, this person's always buttoned up, always this. It's like, yeah, and at home, sometimes they have a cap that claws up their their their, their back, and they go, oh, you know, so I, I think we're going to see a mixture of all of that. Technology will make things better, but we're also going to be more accepting of the fact that, you know, reality is reality, and life is life, and we all live a life. That's a great point, mm -hmm. and it reminds me, I'm sorry, Andrew, just one comment. It reminds me, in the early 60s, there was that very famous book titled The Man in the Gray Suit. Have you ever heard of that? Okay, so this was a, this was a book that was written about life in America and how men, in particular, had to wear a certain kind of uniform, a suit, right, with a white, a starch white shirt and a narrow tie, and had to act a certain way to be the corporate man in order to get a, and, and in Japan, they've had this for years, right? And, and that rigid sort of corporate persona that you've just described, right? Um, my generation, the boomers, rebelled against that and said, no, just hang out, just be cool, just be who you are, right? <laughs> and so we've gone through this evolution. And now, Mike, as I listen to you describe it, I'm like, you're exactly right. It's almost like the pendulum has moved you know, to the other side where, as you point out, when the cat walks across the keyboard or the kid jumps in the room or somebody yells out, hey, honey, I need help with dinner. You go, yeah, we are humans. And, you know, this notion of I have my office persona that's all buttoned up and I present a certain way and then I come home and I, quote, let my hair down. That's going to be harder to do, particularly in a work from home world. Yeah, I'm already seeing a blurring of weekends, right? You know, fr Friday doesn't feel quite the same, neither does Saturday. Um, but, you know, one thought to your three phases, Mike, that I'd love to get your take on is I think with, with the state of this pandemic, we're likely going to see a difference in 
you know, you mentioned kind of the timing and the blurring between the phases, but I also view this as, you know, different industries are going to be going through the three phases at very different times. You know, like you look at the the haves and the have nots, right? I mean, the, you look, let's pick on Google and Apple. They're the behemoths, right? And they're, they, yes, they've been impacted from a health standpoint financially. You know, they, they were one of the, they were fortunate enough to be able to weather the storm, plenty of cash hoards there. And, um, and so they continue to innovate. They're, they're using innovation to fight the fight against um, COVID. They're, they're using innovation to help with PPP applications. And so I'd say companies like that have moved through those phases in a blur. They, they didn't even realize they went through those phases. Others like hospitality, I mean, they're still kind of in phase one, I feel like, right? Or in, you know, even just trying to get a, a handle on phase two. So I'll be curious to, to see, you know, what are the outcomes and the impacts to innovation? Will we see them more focus on certain sectors and industries while others may be a bit more lagging uh, indicators, if you will? Yeah, and, and what I would say to that, Andrew, is that, yeah, various companies uh, will be impacted differently, as you said. I mean, you know, some companies, you know, have done very well because of COVID, right? Do we really think that, you know, you know Instacart and some of these others would have, or, or Zoom, you know, would have done as well within the absence of COVID? I'd say, well, no. And other industries have been devastated by it. So I think what COVID has done is accelerate uh, arcs of change that perhaps were already there, already in motion, and accelerated. Right. Do we think that Zoom would eventually have become more popular than it was six months ago? Sure, I think it would have. Um, same with Instacart. Do we think that uh, um, some retailers would have eventually had to bow out you know, uh, anyway, even without COVID, yeah, some of them were sort of on that trajectory. Um, we're all going to, uh, these businesses are all going to come up to the, uh, the buffet of innovation at different times and get different servings, so to speak. Um, so it, it is going to be an uneven uh, exercise, but it will happen. There's so many things that we are going to yeah. shift and change in terms of how we think, feel, and act. We're remapping basically how consumers uh, want to do things where they have a choice. We're remapping it because we, we don't know what's really going to exist post-COVID. We, we don't know. And just like when a tornado hits and we hear the stories of things that we thought would never go away, even in a tornado or hurricane, and we look out and we're like, wait, that's gone? How did, how did that go? I, and, and wait a minute, but the, you know, the, the boulder's gone? And yet the little bush that we didn't even want and didn't think would survive a normal storm is still there or the glass of the glass of, you know, water on the countertop still there, but the roof's gone. So I think we're going to find things that were just surprised in both directions, things that survive yeah. and things that don't uh, and not necessarily much rhyme or reason to some of them. I think like that's an excellent point. And I think one of the things that for those people who are listening, uh, I, I have a bias towards action. So I tend to want to look at the things that are happening and go, okay, let's figure this out and let's develop a course of action. And the reality is, to your point, there's an awful lot that's still unsettled. And there's a lot of questions that are still unanswered. And there's a lot of change that we're watching it sort of like a train. Yeah, I mean, this is a bad analogy, but a train wreck in slow motion. I mean, it's it's happening, but it's not done yet. And so, you know, when I read or hear people say, oh, what's your new business plan? What's this? What's that? You know, it almost seems like to me the first thing you need to do is to start sort of, as you called it, mapping, but paying close attention and spend some time observing what's happening without necessarily drawing any conclusions yet because i don't i don't think the drama's over i i don't think the baseball game i don't think we're in the ninth inning of COVID. i think we might be at the end of the first or second but i think there's a lot of game to play before at least in terms of our country this whole thing plays out 
Yeah, exactly. It's one of the analogies I sometimes use is that I think right now the COVID uh, piece of what we're going through is sort of like being in an avalanche. And during the avalanche, when things are in motion and there's a whiteout and you can't see in front of your face, probably not the time to be discussing, even if you could, and say, hey, which ski run should we open up tomorrow? <laughs> well, I, I don't know which parts of the mountain are still going to be there. Right. Um, so it's, it's tough to plan. You can still do scenarios and say, say, well, if the, you know, if the South coast of the mountain is still there, then let's open up runs three and four. And if the North case is still viable, let's open up seven and eight. But, you know, you can think through and scenario it. And then as you get data to say what's there, what's not, you've at least thought through. So it's not starting from scratch. You've thought through the scenarios and say, okay, if this is what we wake up to once the snowstorm and the avalanche stops, this is how we'll react. And you can think through that plan of action uh, before before the, the chaos is over so that once it is over, you're ready to go and say, okay, we already have a plan. We're going to implement plan number 17 because that's what it looks like we're faced with. Go. Yeah, no, I think that's that's spot on. Andrew, I interrupted you. Earlier. Yeah, no, I, I was going to bring up, um, you know, we, we talked a bit offline. I'd love for us to bring it up here on, on the show, which is the, kind of the trickle-down effect, the impacts of, of COVID to the economy, not just here nationally, but potentially, obviously, globally. You know, Mike, you were talking about kind of a Disney World. You, you laid out a scenario with Disney World. You know, I'd love for you to kind of talk us through that and and your your thought process behind that. Remind me on Disney World. I'm blanking. I think <laughs> I think that was the one that I was giving of what does it oh, take for family to Mark. go to Disney World? Yeah, there you go. My and, my bad guys. We'll no, no, that's this. fine. I'll I'll just do the short version and then let Mike fill it in because he's a great storyteller and I want okay. to hear him add color to this. Uh, now, mine was if a family this summer. Let, let's imagine. And I just, by the way, just finished reading about. Disney last night and the New York Times. And Mark, maybe I'll stop. You. How about I reframe it and then uh, yeah, yeah, go jump, ahead. jump into it for just editing purposes. So, Mark, one thought I wanted to bring up that we discussed offline, I think would be really valuable for our listeners to hear is the scenario you, you laid out on Disney World and the impacts, the reach that even just a trip to Disney World, the impacts that the pandemic is having. Um, on travel, on families, on hospitality. You know, talk us through that. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So um, let's imagine that, uh, and, and I'm sure the guys at, in Burbank and Disney would love this to be true. Let's imagine that they got a, a pass from the governor of Florida to open up Disney World, right? As opposed to Disneyland in California. Um, so let's let's kind of trace what has to happen. So the first thing is you have to have people that, first of all, have the income, the discretionary income to travel, right? So you've got one out of four Americans in retail and retail is taking a hard hit. So you're not going to have many retail families going to Disney World, right? They're going to be hoarding cash. So it's probably going to be the people who've been working from home in maybe a high tech job or something where they could do that. So the first thing is they go, okay, do I have the money and do I want to spend the money? And there's a lot going on about whether people want to, do they want to spend or do they want to save? The indicators right now from the Fed is that saving rates are going way up in the United States and spending is way down. But let's assume for a moment that we have somebody who said, no, I'm going to go to Disney World. So then they go, okay, I've got a couple of kids, right? Pre-teens, perfect age to go. Then I got to go, well, I got to travel there. How am I going to get there? Let's let's localize this to Dallas, right? Am I going to drive? Well, that's a heck of a long drive. I've actually done that twice, and it's a long drive. Or am I going to fly? I've also done that. Well, if I fly, that means that I've got to step up to the risk associated with contagion in an aircraft, which we talked about earlier on the show. And then when I get to the destination, then I've got the question of, well, is the car that I rent has it been sanitized and cleaned, right? Does the hotel have the kind of sanitation process, I don't know how else to describe it, antiseptic process, that I'm comfortable with as for me, let's say I'm a parent with, because I'm bringing my children who are trusting their mom and dad to take care of them for this, you know, great lifetime experience, right? So, is the hotel, do they follow the right protocols of cleanliness, right? And of course, I have images as somebody who's older of 
cruise ships and illness, right? And hotels are nothing more than beached cruise ships, right? That's a way to think about them, right? They're large contained properties with lots of entertainment, right? So then let's let's assume that I get through all of those gates and I get to Disney World. What does Disney World look like? Because all of those rides, I mean, I've been there. You're all sitting together. Are they going to all of a sudden spread everybody out? What does that do to the experience? Because a lot of the experience is being next to your child, screaming and yelling and hollering and having this <laughs> kind of shared experience, right? What if there's a plexiglass window that's between me and the person next to it because of safety reasons? What does that do to the experience? Or standing in line, right? I got to maintain six feet. Does that mean family members? Not? I mean, man, this is complicated, and I, I just, I don't know how to thread that needle. I don't even know what that looks like. So that's why I think when people say, oh, it's all going to return to normal, I'm like, to use Mike's point, man, there's so many plates that aren't spinning that are on the floor, either broken or have yet to be resurrected. I don't know how you get all that put back. It's Humpty Dumpty. It's Humpty Dumpty's on the floor in pieces. And how do you put Humpty Dumpty together? I don't know. It's going to be an interesting mosaic. Humpty Dumpty is going to have uh, some some different parts and pieces that maybe uh, didn't come from Humpty originally, um, and and yet, you know, we're we're going to say, well, it it's a piece and it seemed to fit where there wasn't a piece, so we're going to put it there. Um, I think the Disney thing, a couple things, uh, we've actually been spending, uh, gosh, a good part of the last three or four weeks looking at some new technologies that really take us from the world where we where we periodically clean and sometimes disinfect to a world in the future where we periodically clean and continuously disinfect. For example, using technologies to put things into the air that would sanitize not only the air, but the surfaces the air touches. So I think we have to be open to the ideas in the future keeping safe between different people, uh, different strangers, let's say at a park or on a ride, may not be about a physical barrier as much as it about uh, things in the air that keep us protected from one person to another. Um, the other point I wanted to make is that I think when, when things are chaotic, it's helpful to think about what we uh, call the timeless needs. And we do this a lot when we're doing futures work or, or research where we encourage our clients to say, let's first look at the timeless needs of, of your customer. And, and timeless needs are the needs that we had those needs in the past, we have them now, and we will absolutely have them in the future. We strip away the layer of technology and how we're achieving them today and say, okay, what's the timeless need? Um, and I think some of those things uh, uh, aren't going to go away and the timeless needs of I want to still, regardless of what's going on with COVID, some things will continue. I'm still going to acknowledge important events like birthdays and anniversaries. Might not be able to go to the mall or take somebody out to dinner, but I can still acknowledge those things. Those things are timeless needs. How I, how I celebrate them may change, but those timeless needs will be there. Um, and so, yeah, the, the need to, to share unique experiences with your children, um, Disney's still going to have a role in the future. People are still going to want those magical experiences, even though those experiences may certainly shift and change in part due to technology and in part, you know, uh, just due to necessity. Um, but again, think through the timeless needs. Uh, the other example of timeless needs is when I was young, my, my, my father would drive us around, we would go places, and he would communicate with people outside of the car, from inside the car. And you're like, well, Mike, at your age, he probably didn't have a cell phone, so what are you talking about? I'm like, you're right, he didn't have a cell phone back then. But he would communicate. Sometimes it was honk the horn, flash the lights, yell, wave. In fact, he was very effective at waving. Sometimes he could do it with as little as one finger um, and communicate with people outside of the car. And then eventually we had things like, you know, uh, uh, CB radios and cell phones in the future. We'll still communicate with people outside of the car and we might not use a cell phone. And we might not even hawk the horn or flash the lights or yell. The car might communicate for us in some other way. But if we strip away the technology and how we achieve it, we still are left with the things that we still are going to achieve and still going to do. We did it in the past, we do them now, we will do them in the future. And so I think it's in these times good to look at what are the timeless needs and then just reimagine how we're going to serve those needs. 
I think that's an excellent, and I love that phrase, and I think that cues us up for our, what I want to call our next episode, is to talk about timeless needs. I, I, that's really a marvelous phrase, and uh, after this podcast uh, recording is over, I'm going to go think about timeless needs. That's a great phrase, Mike, there you great go. turn of phrase. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> The thing too, I would pull, I would point out. You know, we're talking Disney here. It just so happened they released their earnings today. Uh, I mean, is this not a testimony for diversifying? You know, they they experienced what fifty two or fifty eight percent drop in operating income uh, of their dis of all their Disney parks, and yet um, they they truly have remained afloat in other areas. And a lot, you know, you look at Disney Plus and. You look at some of you know what they've done with Marvel and Star Wars, all these other you know ESPN. I mean, had they remained stagnant and not looked for ways to diversify, I think we'd be reading a lot more of a, a gloomier story and outcome of uh, Disney right now. I think to use Mike's Mike's phrase, "timeless needs." If you think of Disney as being an entertainment company, whoever gave yeah. thought to, I mean, in Walt was the creator of the movies and the notion of characters and animation and all that kind of stuff. Right. To, to, to imagine a world in which that timeless need for entertainment or shared family entertainment is content that I can stream. Right. Um, as now for, from the standpoint of Disney's, you know, P and L and balance sheet, that's now got to take up a slack from the timeless need of a shared experience IRL right. of going to Disney world. Right. And so that's, that's, boy, I want to dive into this more. That's a great way to think <laughs> about it. And I think as a, as a, as a sort of a, the foundation for how to think about innovation, that could really be a great way to sort of view the lens to view this, this challenge that we're in right now. I, I've got a PowerPoint deck I can share with you sometime, Mark, if you're if you're willing to slog through it. I, I would love that. I would enjoy that. Always willing. Great. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, guys, let's let's bring this uh, segment to a close. Then we'll pick back up um, on this topic. We'll look for more actions that companies, business leaders can take to innovate in this face of COVID nineteen. And in, in terms of innovation, you know, we need to look at the constraints that we're facing here. And so I'm sure we'll talk more about that in our follow-up episode. But for now, thank you all for listening to the Dallas Space Innovators podcast. I am Andrew Louder signing out. Hey, I'm Mark. Good night. I'm Mike. Good night. That's our show for today. We hope you took away something valuable. Be sure to visit Louderco at louderco.com for more. Thank you again and stay tuned for more from Dallas-based innovators.